Americans. This is the Urbane Cowboys podcast with Josiah Neely of R Street Institute and Doug McCullough of Lone Star Policy Institute. Good day. Howdy, y'all. Welcome to the Urbane Cowboys podcast. I'm Josiah Neely with the R Street Institute. And I'm Doug McCullough with the Lone Star Policy Institute. Uh, today we're joined by Madeline Cairns of National Review and a, the William F. Buckley Fellow in Political Journalism at the National Review Institute. Uh, welcome to the show. Thank you. So today I wanted to talk about some of the things that you've written quite a lot about, um, which is transgender politics. But before we go there, uh, I wanted to uh, let you sort of introduce yourself a little bit to our listeners. Um, I understand your background a little bit, that you are from Glasgow, and I know firsthand that you are a very good singer because I heard you sing, I guess it was a couple years ago at the Buckley Dinner. Uh, but tell us a little bit about yourself and how you found your way to National Review. Sure. So, yeah, I'm from Glasgow, Scotland, and grew up there, went to school there. I went to university at the University in Andrews, and then after a year out, I won a scholarship to go do a master's program at New York University and to be honest I didn't really think of myself as particularly conservative while I was there but I started to realize a lot of things that I wasn't. I wasn't a progressive, wasn't a socialist, definitely wasn't a feminist and I ended up stumbling into to journalism really. I mean the, my master's was in journalism but that was more like what else am I going to do with this arts degree type thing. But I ended up kind of stumbling into journalism, started my career actually as an intern at The Spectator, which is a right of centre magazine in London. had a cover story there in which I wrote about my experience of being somebody right of centre at New York University. And that kind of uh, launched my writing career, uh, definitely. I then had to go back to NYU for a year after that. And... Charlie Cook had read that article and so he knew who I was when I applied for the Buckley Fellowship and yeah so then I, I got hired by National Review and I've been here ever since. Wonderful. So you know on our on our program we've talked about a lot of different far-flung pol- policy issues everything from like immigration economics affordable housing and maybe occasionally dabbling in it's into the absurdities of things like cryptozoology, but we've never really talked about gender politics, let alone transgender politics. But I know this is something you've talked a lot, written a lot about. And I think most recently, uh, at least the most recent dust up I saw in the news was right before the holidays, um, there was uh, sort of a uh, a big controversy with J.K. Rowling's, uh, the author of the Harry Potter book. And uh, I think that the the particular uh, tweet uh, that got her in trouble was, uh, she said words to this effect, uh, dress however you please, call yourself whatever you please, sleep with any consulting adult who will have you, live your best life in peace and security, but force women out of their jobs for stating their, that sex is real, question mark, with a hashtag of I stand with Maya. You wrote an article about that at the time. Who's Maya and what what is Rowling talking about there? Sure. So Maya Fristata was a researcher and writer for a think tank. Uh, she mainly talked about kind of monetary policy and taxes and things. And in a personal capacity, uh, she tweeted uh, about gender laws and policies. And she basically was saying there's a big debate just now in the UK about 
whether or not a person should be able to change their legal gender simply by filling out a form. And Maya Frasata thought this was a very bad idea because it could be potentially harmful to women's protected spaces and so on and so forth. And so she had engaged in this debate on her personal Twitter account outside of work. And if you read the tweets she she posted, they're very moderate and they're very courteous. And she's very well informed. She's very clear about what it is she believes and why she thinks it's important to talk about this publicly. Anyway, she ended up her contract was not renewed and it was she was told this was why that people were concerned about her transphobia and, and so on and so forth. And so she took this to an employment tribunal in the United Kingdom. You can take things to court if you're unfairly dismissed. And she tried to present her argument from the perspective of protected belief. Uh, so when we have a law in the UK called the Equality Act, which is a 2010 law passed to put an end to certain types of discrimination, and there's certain protected characteristics. And among these characteristics, the ones you would expect, which would be sort of religion and uh, sex and um, gender reassignment, which means, you know, if you've had a sex change operation, she was trying to file this under protected belief and her belief that she wanted protecting was the belief that you can't actually change your sex and that she doesn't believe in transgenderism, so just the kind of age-old belief of male and female. Um, and she lost this because she was told that this belief didn't qualify on the grounds that it was incompatible with human dignity. So J.K. Rowling, I think, who is by no means a conservative, she is a liberal and she very much does not like the sitting president, among other things like Brexit. But she weighed into this and said, like, hold on, what? Like, this is insane. Well, I'm paraphrasing. You, you read out what she actually said. And it sparked this huge controversy on both sides of the Atlantic and I was asked on the BBC to debate a transsexual about this and it was, um, you know, one of those moments in writing about this where you think, I don't actually understand why this is controversial. It just seems so obvious to me, but that's where we're at, I guess. Right, and even, like you said, with Rowling's, I mean, even the statement itself, you know, I think just a few years ago, I think would have been viewed as a, a liberal position. It doesn't seem... Uh, it doesn't seem like it would be that controversial, but we're in a different different age. What's you know? And I saw one of the things that I kept seeing was this term "turf" T E R F. <laughs> as uh, uh, explain what explain what that means, and ex- explain what the I guess the battle lines are being drawn between feminist and transgender activists at this point. Sure. So one of the biggest struggles in terms of controlling the narrative in the United Kingdom for the trans activists has been that the opposition is actually not coming from the right, it's coming from the left. And that's partly because we don't have a culture war in the United Kingdom. We don't have anything even slightly resembling a healthy, uh, self-assured conservative movement. And so because of that, you had this left-on-left civil war, if you will, around this issue and you have the radical left fighting the liberal left and the liberal left tend to be just kind of normal people so like jk rowling or like mums and teachers and doctors and that kind of thing and so what 
the radical sort of trans activists try to do in order to make sense of this to people and and seize the narrative um, and call everybody they disagree with bigots because that's how they play this game, is they said that, well, anyone who is approaching this issue from a woman's rights perspective is buying into a very dangerous, horrible, extreme brand of feminism called trans-exclusionary radical feminism, which is shortened to TERF. And so TERFs are actually basically like Nazis. And so anyone who says, for instance, that a woman uh, is an adult human female and cannot, a person with a penis cannot be a woman and a person who's ever had a penis cannot be a woman, that person is a TERF. And TERF equals Nazi and Nazi equals very bad. And so you have this perfect formula in which you can shut down debates uh, just by this little handy slogan thing. So that's what TERF is. It's it really, it makes me laugh. I think it just, it's so funny. Like it makes me think of like a little like gnome or something, like a little, what are they called? Those little blue gnomes? Trolls. No, this, the Smurfs. The Smurfs? Is that right? Smurf. Oh, Smurfs. Smurfs. Yeah, that's right. So anyway, so people are tariffs or they're right wing or they're in bed with the right. And this is just, it's, you know, it's the same thing happened with feminism, of course, with pornography and prostitution is that feminists who found themselves in alignment with conservatives on certain issues had to be mocked and derided and smeared and defamed because they're actually much more threatening than the right, which is always going to be the boogeyman. But the feminists who are approaching this from a left-wing or liberal point of view are dangerous because it calls into question the credibility that this is actually progressive and this is actually liberal and this is actually good for women. So uh, I know you mentioned in your introduction that you uh, wouldn't consider yourself a, a feminist, but I, it does seem like that the uh, the TERFs, so to speak, or the feminists, uh, as I look around, there there's a lot within the transgender rhetoric that in other contexts would seem pretty objectionable from a feminist perspective. There's an article, for example, recently that said that if boys, if, if little boys didn't want to play with trucks or guns or girls didn't want to play with dolls, that that was a sign that they were really transgendered and you know, I am one of the common, I guess, explanations of the transgendered phenomenon is, you know, you have someone, the body of a man and the female brain or vice versa. And I know that if some, you know, if someone at National Review were to write an article about the, the male brain and the female brain, I don't think that that would come across as being like very pro progressive and feminist, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the... There's a few things in what you've said, and one of them is that the whole brain thing that the the activists do is that they're actually making a slightly different argument to the one I think that feminists have traditionally hated. So, the transgender activists, when they say a male brain and a and a female body and vice versa, which is their justification for medical intervention, they they're confusing. Actually, it's it's really a metaphor that they mean that what they're actually talking about is Cartesian dualism, mind, soul, uh, the distinction that you can have a soul, which is which is much more consequential and defining than your body. And my simple response to that would be 
that we are not, you can't be born in the wrong body because you aren't in a body. You are a body. It's, it's a fairly um, straightforward philosophical difference that we have with these people is that, that you just materially are your your body and that is just what you are now the the where feminists start to get really annoyed by this whole thing is that they're going into this um biological determinism thing now there is there's been historically big fights between conservatives and feminists over the issue of what you said about brain science stuff because they they have historically some feminists have really resented the idea that men and women are Inher- inherently different in the way that their cognitive development um, plays out, and so if you are if you have a, a male brain, and you, that means that you're going to be more aggressive. Whereas actually, no, some feminists would say that's not true. It's social conditioning. Most likely explanation, if you actually look into it, is it some combination of the both of the two. But the transgender movement has hijacked onto that debate, and the whole thing. It's very interesting. So as soon as you start to try and like really get your head around what they're arguing, it, it it goes full circle. And you mentioned this in your introduction. You know, you said about the fact that if you play with trucks, right, then you are um, that's masculine. And so even if you have a female body, if you're playing with trucks, that could be a sign that you've got a male body, a male brain in your female body. And so that could be a sign that you're really uh, a boy instead of a girl and that's obviously ridiculous and it's also insulting to the feminists because it's, it's that biological essentialism thing that biological determinism that you you know you have no control and social conditioning has nothing to do with it and for sensible people there's a middle ground where obviously there are biological influences over our personality and sex is a big one um but just because somebody's playing with trucks does not mean that they are a man. The way that you tell that whether they're male or female is their material body. It's very complicated, but I think that kind of just about sums up the differences. If you don't mind, Josiah, I'd actually like to, to I don't know, ask, sort of pose that question to you for maybe 15 seconds or so. Is that consistent with Catholic theology in terms of uh, you are a body versus you are a spirit in a body. I'm just kind of curious on that for just a moment. Yeah. So to get to get a little theologically nerdy, the uh, traditional Catholic view is what is known as uh, hylomorphism, uh, which comes from Aristotle and Saint Thomas Aquinas, uh, which says that uh, the soul is the uh, form of the body, kind of the the unity of the body. Uh, and so, uh, so we, we do believe that there is a soul as Catholics, but it is not a dualist or Cartesian thing, uh, as Ms. Kearns was, uh, discussing earlier. And I think that's probably at about the, the level of depth that is fit for a policy podcast. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. Um, you know, in addition to Rowling's, what's you know, have there been other uh, other celebrities, other people of you know, some fame that have dared to speak out and say things similar to what she just tweeted, or are people scared off from even saying something like I said that just a few years ago I think that would have been just sort of non-controversial common sense? Uh, yeah, there's been a few. Ricky Gervais has said some stuff. 
um there's been a, there's been a few people who have said something and then realized that it was really controversial and then withdrawn it that's probably more common um but it's funny i think a lot of people it it really is like all in the anticipation of of the, the fear of saying something i i think that if you are a woman who who could lose her job for saying something that's one thing but if you're this like billion billionaire um there's just really there's really no excuse like you should be able to just if you live in one of the freest countries on planet earth and you have a ton of money then you should really say what you think um so i don't really have much respect for all these celebrities just kind of going along with it because it's causing a lot of problems yeah, I, I warned you, Sai. I said if we do this topic, I said we could lose all of our advertisers. Sure. Thankfully, we don't have any advertisers, so we're okay. <laughs> okay, I was like, I was like, really? <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, but but actually, National Review does, and National Review Institute has donors. Is is this you know the, your writings? Is it sort of non-controversial in the conservative circles of the donor class that you know actually donate to National Review and maybe the readers of National Review, or even at National Review, are you getting some pushback on some of the writings that you do? Um, no, I mean, for, first of all, I don't know anything about how all the how all the donor stuff works, <laughs> and I'm glad I don't because it's just a whole other world. But um, no, I I'm very lucky. I have full editorial support. I think Rich is very much of my view on this issue, and I, I think for a conservative, I, I actually approach it very sensitively. I think, uh, in the sense that I've done the reporting, I've spoken. To transsexuals, I've spoken to gay rights uh, advocates, feminists, women who I don't really have anything else in common with politically, and and I'm really finding that there's a there's a lot of people who who are really not not with the with the program here. So I tr- I try very hard to write in such a way that doesn't alienate those types of people. Um, there's a danger on the right to sort of buy into the whole LGBT thing and, and say, oh, yes, these these wretched alphabet people again, um, when will they shut up and go away? And actually, it's obviously a, an oversimplification and quite tribal way of looking at it because the L and the G and the B are all distinct and the T is just this completely other thing. And even within the T, there's the old school transsexuals and then there's this new transgender thing and that's completely different. So it's it's actually a very complicated issue uh, and I think the complexity is rarely properly um, explained and accounted for. Well, actually, pause on that for just a moment. What's what's the difference between transsexual and transgender? Because I think this is something that, that kind of makes me scratch my head a little bit. Um, I'm sort of predisposed. Um, I think I think that on this show I've been described as an ultra Frenchist in the David French sense of you know sort of let people you know live and let live type of mindset, and uh, probably maybe a little bit more than David French himself. But uh, what's the what's the distinction here between trans transgender and transsexual? Because one of the things that always confuses me is this whole concept of gender as a social construct. But then it seems like they're trying awfully hard to prove that they are transgender, and I find it all confusing. Yeah, the, I mean, the basic answer is just fashion. It's just not a fashionable word anymore to say transsexual because it 
draws too much attention to the material body, i.e. your sex. And so there's a kind of attempt to completely cover over sex, your biology, with this new gender stuff, which is all about your identity and the way you see yourself and the way you want other people to see you. So the transgender thing is also a much broader category. So transsexualism traditionally applied to people who either had had um, sex change surgeries, so genital modification, um, or it applied to people who aspired to have such surgeries. And so it was really reserved for quite a rare uh, group of people who had maybe tried a lot of other types of therapies and it hadn't really worked in making them feel better. But the transgender thing really just applies to anybody who wants to dress eccentrically and then say I'm the opposite sex or I'm non-binary. I'm neither sex. I'm something different altogether. So it's a much, much broader umbrella. And again, like I said, with the LGBT thing, it, it means that the, the uh, nuance and the complexity and the differences between each subdivision are completely glossed over. And that has been to the political advantage of people pushing more extreme agendas because um, to criticise one is perceived to be a criticism of all sexual minorities and an attempt to send them back to the days of um, being castrated and uh, stoned to death and, and whatnot. Right. And let's, let's talk a little bit about the politics and the, the law, the legal aspects too, because, you know, like I said, I, I'm sort of predisposed to let people choose, you know, it's sort of it's sort of embedded right there in, in Rowling's tweet of you can choose how to live your life, but it's, that doesn't solve every one of these issues. And they're one of the, um, you know, there's a case in Canada um, of uh, a, a, a biological male who was uh, who was denied service at a, a salon that we asked to have his unmentionables waxed and they denied it. And he claimed uh, human rights violations. And thankfully, he, he lost that. But, you know, more, I guess, hitting more close to home and much more common fact pattern is, you know, is transgender athletes where you have biological males who are competing with girls in like high school sports. And I think maybe this whole topic I've, I've sort of put in the back of my mind as not being that relevant until uh, a family friend, this very thing is happening with her where she's a, she's a student athlete and she's having to compete with males. And I think it maybe brought it home a little bit more personal to me. So there's, there's sort of the political side of it where this is no longer just, I'm going to respect your lifestyle choices and we can just all choose to get along. Now you have these activists that are pushing an agenda, like the case of this transgender for all the human rights uh, claims in Canada, and also these transgender athletes that know that they're getting a competitive advantage in public school athletics. What you know? Talk a little bit about the the politics and the legal aspect of this. What's and is there any reasonable solution out there where we can, you know, we can draw meaningful distinctions without trying to demean these people for their lifestyles lifestyle choices? Yeah, I mean, the the whole thing is kind of like a straw man in in, in my view about the. So they've exploited two things, I think, the, the activists, the extreme activists. They've exploited the fact that, as you say, uh, right and rightly so, most people are just not in, in the least bit interested in this topic. And why should they be? It's just, it's so fringe and it's so bizarre. And you want a quiet life. And these people obviously 
are quite monomaniacal and it's all they think about every moment of the day. So just leave them, let them get on with it. And as long as they leave me alone, that's fine. So they've exploited that. They've exploited the fact that people are quite courteous by by default. And uh, so if you if you want somebody to dress you in a certain way, you, you will generally because life's short and you can't really be bothered. And by exploiting those two things, what they've done over the last uh, couple of decades is they've essentially um, rewritten a lot of our laws without us really noticing because we didn't have a debate about a lot of this stuff because nobody was paying attention and nobody could be bothered. And now we're starting to see the effects of that. So I'll give you some specific examples, both um, in the UK and then in America. So in the UK, they had in 2004, what was called the Gender Recognition Act. And that allowed for a transsexual to change his or her legal gender, provided that she or he could show proof of having gender dysphoria that is clinically um, certified like distress related to their natal gender and proof that they'd, they'd undergone some type of transition, be it chemical or surgical and the idea of that was it it obviously ruled out people who were just going to exploit the system because it was people who were clearly very committed to this and needed some type of legal accommodation so that was in 2004 nobody I know involved in this movement really noticed that at the time it was thought to be something that would really only affect a very very small number of people but now we have a proposal and the proposal has only come in the last sort of four or five years do you know what? It's actually, and this is what the activists say, they say, it's actually very distressing for somebody to have to go through the ordeal of getting the doctor's certificate or prove whether or not they've had changes made to their body. And so we would just like to have a form that allows them to change their legal legal gender. And that, like I said, going back to the distinction between transsexualism and transgenderism, that then gives a person who perhaps has just wears a dress two times a week to claim status of transgender and change his legal gender. This obviously sparks a lot of concern because you gave the example of sports. Sports is just one of many things which this can potentially touch in life. Um, And so that has obviously sparked a lot of debate. Now, in the the US, we're we're at risk of of sleepwalking into something even worse. And that is uh, the US version of the Equality Act, which has passed the House. And the Equality Act is really, I mean, if you actually read the text, as I have done, it is incredibly aggressively drafted. It means that transgenderism would be this um de facto protected characteristic under the 1964 Civil Rights Act, meaning that basically no school can deny a, a, a biological male who identifies as a female to compete in sports or housing or bathrooms or whatever. And the debate around this issue is not happening in part because people just cannot be bothered with the backlash because also they just don't really understand what everybody's talking about because the language is so confusing and because it's perceived to affect only a very small number of people. Uh, But the truth is that it is affecting more and more people because the definition has become so incredibly broad and because it's become this sort of cult, really, whereby anybody who's confused or dissatisfied with their body or their life or even their personality can now latch on to this transgender thing as a means of salvation or liberation. And moreover, they now have this this, uh, whole 
system of laws and policies which reinforce that identity. And I really do think that if, if there isn't sort of determined opposition to this, we are going to wake up in a country that we just don't recognise because it, think how fundamental the differences between men and women are like in every area of your life, right? You just kind of take it for granted. I mean, the fact that we're all here talking to each other is, you know, testament to the differences of men and women that resulted in us being brought into existence. So I think we're underestimating the problem. I think that the activists know, know exactly how to get ahead of the, the legislative agenda without bypass the intent to bypass public debate. In fact, there was a very interesting um, lobby group, a legal top international law firm called Denton's released this handbook, which was essentially guidance to activists on how they could do this, how they could manage to get ahead of the legislative agenda and public debate and uh, and just ha- piggyback onto gay rights and limit press coverage so that we end up with their agenda, whether we like it or not. With that in mind, do you do you really think that in this political climate, um, particularly in an election year, that the robust response that you're you're sort of describing a resistance to this legislation and this and this movement? Do you really expect to see anyone um, in, like you know right now that's running for office again that's in, in you know in this election cycle actually uh, standing up to the movement in this legislation? No. <laughs> I'm I'm glad that we went back and asked a detailed question for that response. <laughs> well, I just figured since my last answer was like ten minutes. Okay, all right. So let, let's let's switch to a non-controversial topic, which is Brexit. Uh, so the UK Parliament has just approved, I believe, the Boris Johnson withdrawal agreement. So it looks like. Britain will be uh, formally exiting the European Union at the end of January, and I wanted to get, uh, as a Scot, uh, I know that this is something that has uh, caused a lot of consternation, uh, really throughout the UK, but also uh, with some side ripples involving Scotland's continued place in the United Kingdom. And uh, we had John O'Sullivan on the program a while back to talk about Brexit and shortly after the election results he wrote an article saying that this was that the the Brexit was going to lead to the breakup of the United Kingdom because there was a big result in Scotland for the Scottish National Party and they are talking about how they want another they want their own referendum again for independence and uh, yada 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 so what uh, what is your perspective on all of that sure so i think um well, first of all, the, the deal being put through Parliament was inevitable when Johnson got his massive majority. And I think it'd be worth just talking about why I think he got such a large majority. And I think, frankly, the British public are just so tired of, of all of this. We're, we're tired of the fact that we voted three years ago and nothing had been done and there was just complete incompetency and the Labour Party just moved so far left and the Conservatives were just a complete shambles and clearly we needed a new parliament and we needed somebody with vision and purpose and bombast who could come in, get the job done and that is what 
Boris Johnson sold to the British public, and that's what they bought. Obviously, has a won that election with a with a landslide. Now, um, that saying, the the concern about what's just happened in Scotland is real in the sense that we have the Scottish Nationalist Party who are very pro-independence. In fact, I would say they're monomaniacal about independence and ignore their domestic responsibilities. But we have, they picked up some seats where Labour lost some seats in the last election and they are now pretty dogged and single-minded about getting a second referendum. So they would need permission from Westminster in order to hold that referendum. Um, And I think it would be ultimately a mistake for Boris Johnson not to to give it to them because my suspicion is that actually people north of the border are in just as much election and referendum fatigue mode as people south of the border and so I think if we had another referendum we would vote no and I think polling is is different it's difficult to read because polling right after so Scotland hate the Tories and they have done since Thatcher. And so polling right after the election showed a, a, like a little spike, um, a little um, rise in the number of people who who wanted to who wanted independence. But really, I, I think that that's kind of all talk. And I think if, if you actually presented it to us and said, OK, do you know what? Fine. Like we respect your right to to do this. If you want to hold a referendum, I reckon that people would be very angry and annoyed that they'd been brought to the ballot box once again without really a clear plan of how this is going to work. Um, never mind the inconsistencies in the political argument, which is we want to leave, we don't want to leave the European Union, but we do want to leave the United Kingdom and potentially re-enter the European Union. It's like, wait, I thought the whole point here was that you wanted to be a sovereign nation. How does that make any sense? So I don't think it's uh, politically, uh, certainly not an economically viable um, viable project, or, or I don't think that it would the Scots would would ultimately choose it. But I think it would be a political mistake for Johnson not to allow it. Although I understand that immediately they want to get Brexit done, and that would be first on the agenda. So Prime Minister's questions the other day. All the the Scot, Scottish nationalists were talking about was independence, and I don't think that was a good look for them because obviously there's just we've just had an election. At least wait, you know, a couple of months before you get on that train again. I, I actually would love to uh, end with a a request, that, knowing that you're a singer, and I, like I said, I've heard you sing before, and it sort of brings to mind a um, there's a classic <laughs> interview with Margaret Thatcher, where she was asked if she would uh, jump as part of the uh, the interview. And I was just wondering if uh, you would regale us with uh, whatever your favorite song is. You'd like to sing a, a few notes for us? Um, oh, gosh. I mean, uh, <laughs> you know, weirdly, this is actually not the first time I've been asked to. Um, I'm, I'm just going to do a, a little la, and, and that'll be enough. So la, 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 la. There you go. Impressive. Wow, there you go. Very nice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you, know, you don't want to regale us with old Lang Syne? Not really, no. Um, but, <laughs> you know, I could, could um, I mean, if I'd been told in advance, I, I would have brought, I would have brought, uh, you know, portable keyboard. <laughs> I would have ah, there that. you go. <laughs> but uh, thank you for asking. It's always nice to be asked. <laughs> you, you are working on an EP, correct? 
That's right, yeah. What style of music will that be, potentially? Uh, that's mostly kind of folk uh, folk songs. So my, my sister's a singer as well. She has a slightly more pop voice. Mine's a slightly more classical. And so um, I've written a bunch of songs. She'll probably write some as well. And we'll do them together. Um, so, yeah, I like, I like to say, you know, it's like kind of storytelling songs, so kind of like old school folk with, with um, uh, yeah, with Scottish stuff in there. Now, I, I have to ask, this might get edited out, but I have to ask, uh, who would be some of your musical inspirations if you're saying Celtic, uh, Scottish uh, folk music? Oh, sure. So I grew up listening to like a lot of Irish music, um, mm. so like Paul Brady, the Furies, Chords, and then like contemporary Irish folk singers like Cara Dillon or English folk singers like Kate Rusby and that kind of thing. But I also definitely would say that my probably my two biggest as a songwriter, my two biggest influences are Randy Newman and mm. uh, Bob Dylan. Um, mm. Randy Newman, I think, is really such an original, original writer, and he and he's funny and he's clever. Um, not all of his songs are catchy, but all of his songs have something to say. Is, is he the guy who did "Short People Have No Reason to Live"? Was that right? That's quite yeah. right. Okay, all right, good. So. Um, so I mean that that wouldn't be so, so much for this album because this album's not really satirical. But I have got a bunch of satirical songs which I'm sure I will release at some point, and he would be like a very strong inspiration there. But for the storytelling folk stuff, I'd say like more of like Bob Dylan meets like some of these Irish people. <laughs> All right, great. Well, thank you so much for being on the show, and uh, we'll look forward to continuing to read your work at uh, National Review, and uh, looking forward to your EP. Thanks very much. Have a great day.